Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, every week, I bring you brand new cutting-edge military histories from around the world. We like to say we're on the front line of military history. Now, it was 80 years ago this month, in February 1942, that arguably the worst defeat of all time for British-led forces took place the fall of Singapore. To talk us through this important yet infamous history, we have Malcolm Murphitt from King's College London. Malcolm is the author of Naval Warfare, 1919 to 1945, and he gives us an excellent, longer, broader, historical, geopolitical and strategic history of this pivotal moment. He talks to us about the importance of Singapore as a jewel in the crown of empire, the issues and the legacies of the Washington Conference, and the flaws of the Singapore strategy, which was meant to send a rapid response force to uphold Singapore in the event of an emergency. But no one saw that the Japanese would attack Pearl Harbor and Malaya all on the same day. I know you're going to love this one, so drop us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And, just so you know, we're now in the top 20 history podcasts and the top 200 of all podcasts in the UK. So, drop us that five-star review and help us get up to the top 10 and top 100. But now, here is Malcolm Murphy on the fall of Singapore. Enjoy. Hi, Malcolm. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you very much, James. Good, good. Where are you in the world? I'm in Salzburg, where it is snowing wildly. Okay, and is that in Austria? It is indeed. Oh, you lucky man. It must be incredibly beautiful. Well, it is most of the time. Today has been pretty dank, but, uh, but, <laughs> but otherwise, yes, it's usually very agreeable. Well, I suppose Austria seems like a good place to be discussing the Second World War, doesn't it? Well, given the fact that Hitler was Austrian, yes. Now, this month, actually, February, marks the 80th anniversary of the fall of Singapore, which fell in February 1942. It was described by Winston Churchill as the worst disaster and largest capitulation in British history. So, tell us, Malcolm, take us back to that point, perhaps just before 1942. Give us a bit of background about Singapore. Why was it so important for the British before World War II? How long do you have? Seven days? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Let me, let me start by saying that Singapore had become a, a very important economic port. It was something which people recognised as being beautifully, strategically situated, sheltered, unlikely to get any major natural disasters away from volcanoes and other kinds of eruptions. And it was unquestionably a very vital economic part of our empire. But after 1921, it became something more than just this entrepôt which everybody said, well, yeah, this is a cool place to be, because it had 
a geostrategic significance, which of course predated 21, but became even more important after that, because the Anglo-Japanese alliance, which had been established in 1902, the first of the British alliances, after all, the 19th century had been uh, a century in a sense after 1815 of splendid isolation for the British. You know, Disraeli very much rejoiced in this idea of being able to float downstream, putting out a, a rod to, to get it from one bank to the other and so forth, and not ever really joining a permanent set of allies. Well, in 1902, after the incredible war with South Africa uh, from 1899 through 1902, I think the British felt, well, if we couldn't beat the Dutch Boer farmers, who on earth are we going to beat, you know, on the wider, bigger global scale? And so we established an alliance with the Japanese who were also looking for an ally. Uh, and that Anglo-Japanese alliance remained in existence for 20 years. But at the Washington conference, which was convened by the US president in November 21 and went through to February 22, there was a major, and I mean a major change in the way that naval forces were constructed. The, the, the kind of, there were limits placed upon these major capital ships and, and other things. And this was really a very vital thing. And part of this Washington conference was the ending of the Anglo-Japanese alliance, because the Americans didn't like it. They felt that the Brits and the Japanese could do them down uh, at some point in the future. And so as a penalty, as it were, for signing the uh, Washington Conference and, and essentially becoming a part of the international fraternity. Uh, the Americans very clearly wanted the Brits to, to give up the Anglo-Japanese alliance. Now, this has importance because the Japanese were not keen on seeing it end. They weren't in love with the British necessarily, but it was a useful strategic alliance. But come to an end, it did. And this merely galvanized, I think, the Japanese nationalists. And we're going to have to be in it for ourselves. And that was, in a sense, okay, whilst the era of Taisho democracy existed in Japan. But once that era finished at the end of the 20s and, be and Japan became more militaristic, watch out. So this is when you started to see a bit of a, a security dilemma, I suppose we'd call it, start to emerge between the Japanese and the British. And is it, is it at this point that the British start to reconsider, rethink about how they're actually going to secure and defend Singapore if there ever was any sort of Japanese aggression? Now this agreement has, well, been terminated. The, I think the issue predates the ending of the Anglo-Japanese alliance, because Viscount Jellicoe was sent out to the East to basically report on the geostrategic situation, the military situation going forward, looking ahead, shown from the, you know, the, he was after all our admiral, he'd been our admiral at Jutland and so forth. He had tremendous uh, significance, and he went on this mission in 1919 and what he saw and what he told all of those that he went to see, which were the dominions and, and, and so forth, was that the Far East was unlikely to remain quiescent for the foreseeable future. And that the Japanese, instead of being friends, might be, turn out to be enemies. And so as a very dear old professor of mine used to say it, David Dilks, this change from friendship to potential animosity was a major strategic problem in the interwar period. So is it at this point we start to get discussions of the Singapore strategy? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I think you're clearly very determined to get onto this. 
I'm very determined to get onto this. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, I think basically what Jellicoe is is saying is, look, if you've got a strident Japanese in the Far East, you can't rely upon that nationalistic Japanese to look after our interests in that region. If that is the case, what are we going to do about those interests? After all, Australia and New Zealand are part of our empire, our commonwealth, right? And while we may talk about the Far East, to them, it's the near north. And they, when they heard Jellicoe's uh, report and what his, his thoughts, they were, of course, hey, this is very important, and we need to have some kind of defence in place. So what is going to be the British plan going forward? Unfortunately, I think the Singapore strategy, as it became known, was a step too far. Now, I know that there are naval historians out there, some of whom will be listening to this podcast and shaking their head already because they know what I'm going to say. They believe that there was vitality to this um, and, and strategic meaning to the Singapore strategy. I do not believe that. I think it was a strategic illusion. I do think that there were some very, very severe problems about creating a base in the Far East where we could say under certain circumstances we would go there and we would build there. The problem was that the, the Washington Conference had basically given the Japanese domination of the Western Pacific. I mean, the Americans weren't allowed to build a first-class naval base closer to the Japanese shores than Pearl Harbor, so it couldn't use Midway, uh, it couldn't uh, use Guam or anything of the, of the sort. And the British were not allowed to build a first-class naval base closer to the shores of Japan than Singapore. So it couldn't use Hong Kong. And, and so Manila couldn't be used by the Americans, we couldn't use Hong Kong. and so. The question then was, well, if you're going to have a Far Eastern strategy to deal with a strident, bellicose Japanese who might be sending a fleet of modern capital ships south, then where are we going to build this base? And various thoughts, Sydney, too far. Hong Kong, impossible because you're not allowed to do it. Singapore, hmm. Okay, Singapore is, is beautifully geostrategically placed there, but it's a long way from Japan. It's a very long way from the UK. And so now, okay, where are you going to build a base if you're going to have it in Singapore? Various offshore islands were thought of, but this would cost an arm and a leg, and money is always tight, and particularly after the First World War, when we really were struggling economically. So there, were, there was one particular base called Keppel Harbour in, in Singapore, which was a maritime base. It wasn't large enough to deal with merchant ships and warships. So you had to say, well, this has to be one or the other. It can't be both. And so a base was looked for in Singapore, which they would have to build. The only problem is that the site that was chosen was actually only one mile away from the southern shore of Johor in Malaya. So this placed the Singapore naval base in, I believe, some peril from the outset. Because if at any stage Johor or Malaya, and then Johor as part of Malaya, fell to an enemy, they had the means, clearly, to threaten Singapore. Now, the only enemy that was likely to strike south was Japan. Now, why would it do that? Well, there were two 
basic camps in the Japanese military at this time. The army, who preferred and favored a strike north, China, Manchuria, this kind of thing. And of course, uh, in 1937, they went into China uh, as a result of the Marco Polo Bridge incident of July 1937. But there was the Navy always had in its mind a strike south. Why? Because the thing that the Navy needed and Japan needed was oil. I mean, Japan basically is, is denuded of most mineral sources. So if Japan wanted to become a major military naval power, it would need to have the resources that would enable it to become so. Now, of course, it relied on 90% of its oil from the United States. But what if the United States turned that off? Then what? So this is really the, the, the bit of the problem that you begin to see once the era of Taisho democracy in Japan changed to one of military authoritarianism. Because then the question was, would the emperor agree with a strike north or would he agree with a strike south? Well, actually agreed with both. But the, the real essence for the Imperial Japanese Navy was that a strike south would make a lot of strategic sense. And then they could build this you know, kind of Asian empire uh, down in, the, in, in Southeastern Asia and so forth and give themselves the sufficient mineral resources necessary to make them a vital economic and military power. And, and Malaya was one of the first steps, one of the first pieces, I suppose you could say, in the jigsaw towards what the Japanese saw as their inevitable road to victory, because they invaded Malaya at almost exactly the same time as the strikes on Pearl Harbor. Have I got that right? Absolutely. They attacked in Southeast Asia, they attacked across the Thai border and then into uh, Northeastern Malaya on the 8th of December. Uh, 1941. And this was a, a potential possibility. But remarkably, in London, there wasn't any guarantee about this at all. Churchill thought, no, no, they won't, no, they won't attack, because if they attack, then the Americans will come in. Well, there was no guarantee that the Americans would come in, unless, of course, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, which nobody had imagined they would. So really, I mean, if you think about the situation, you say, well, okay, so now where are the British in all of this? Where is this base that they created in the North, which could be vulnerable? And well, but it's even more vulnerable, James, because when it was first devised in about 1924, they came up with a scheme called the Green Scheme, which was basically designed to take a substantial number of the Far Eastern fleet that would, or, or the, of the main fleet, rather, that would be moved to the Far East. But that was too expensive. So they cut that down to make it, you know, into a red scheme, which would only take at maximum 20% of, you know, the main fleet. So that's a fifth, right, of what, you know, the, the original scheme might have been able to have, Produced. So, and then it, that was cut by Winston Churchill, of all people, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1924 to 29. So, what you had when the Singapore base was open was nothing like what the chief engineer had imagined would be the naval base. And the question is, well, is it going to be any good at all? Is it going to be sufficient? If we send our main fleet to the Far East, we can't all be in there. What, and what are the rest of them going to be doing? Swanning around, you know, or anchor, or what on earth outside the base? Where is this thought process? To me, it seemed illogical and ridiculous. 
Nobody really went into this in intense detail. First of all, the Conservative government would always kind of support this idea. Labour, under MacDonald, who was a pacifist, wanted to stop the work on the Singapore base and, and did so on the two occasions that Labour got into power in 1924 for, for nine months and then again in 1929. But ultimately, the, the base continued and it was opened in 1938. But it was not fit for purpose. And that, I think, is a really, really important thing to imagine. Because you know, here we are talking about an aggressive Japan that became aggressive. We saw this in Manchuria in 1931. We saw it in bombings of Shanghai and so forth. And then we saw it again in 1937 with the Marco Polo Bridge incident, which opened up a, an undeclared Sino-Japanese war, which started in 1937, went through to 45. So it's clear by the 30s that you've got now a rather unfortunate strategic uh, situation because in Europe, what have we got? We've got Mussolini as the fascist dictator from October 22 onwards. We've got Hitler coming into power on the 30th of January 33 and the Nazis. We then were to find ourselves with the Spanish Civil War from 36 through 39, another fascist coming to the fore. Suddenly, by the end of the 1930s, James, you had Britain in really a very unfortunate grip that was like vice-like, it seems to me. You've got Japan, you've got Germany, you've got Italy, all members of the anti-Comintern pact, all members of a kind of very aggressive alliance, as it were, which was formulated, of course, into a triple alliance in 1940. But, you know, the thing is that still we didn't see it. There was a kind of complacency about the Brits that really almost defies belief. And what worries me, or what worried me, or would have worried me, I think, greatly, is that why didn't the Australians and New Zealanders pick up on this? They could see the strategic situation. They could see that France was not interested in going to the aid of the Brits in the Far East if anything happened there. We had a situation of a Maginot mentality. They built a wall of defensive sophistication that was to try to keep the Germans from invading again. But they weren't into the whole idea of collective security. They never believed in it even though it was part of the League of Nations, that the French were not up for it at all. And so the Brits found themselves in a very peculiar system uh, and situation as the years went by. Because, of course, you could say, well, you know, the, the, this whole idea that you had a 10-year rule where there would be no major war, which was... Uh, another thing that the, the Brits agreed to um, in 1919, that by 1933 had been abandoned because clearly you could not guarantee that there would be no war for 10 years. It was clear it, there was now a real problem that things could deteriorate very badly, very quickly. So we have a mix here of some classic imperial overstretch, perhaps an undervaluing of the importance of Singapore, a mix in with domestic political considerations, that age-old story of cutting of budgets and political wrangling, and mixed in, of course, with, at the very end, an ultimate intelligence failure, I suppose you could call it a strategic shock that leaves us reeling and wondering how to react next. So, if you're sitting in Churchill's position when this happens, what do you do? How does Churchill react? How do the British Empire forces react? Well, I mean, I think if, if we take the story on to 1939 and the German and Soviet 
attacks, obviously, on, on Poland. You've got a phony war type situation in Europe. Okay. Now, it's looking pretty bleak, frankly, whether this Singapore strategy can still hold good. I mean, deteriorating geostrategic situation is, is very obvious. But nothing really as bad as 1940, because once the phony war ends with the attack on Norway and Denmark and, and then the whole low countries and so forth, then, and the fall of France so swiftly afterwards in June, the possibility of Britain sending its ships to the Far East for how long? How, would you, how many would you send? And for how long would you send? You've got the Italians in the war now on the German side. You've got the Soviets who are not in the war, but are very comfortably ensconced where they are, where they can attack Finland and, and basically do what they like with the eastern part of Europe. Britain is facing invasion by Germany. The Battle of Britain just staves that off in summer of 1940. But honestly, is there any chance of sending, you know, a major fleet to the Far East should the Japanese start disturbing the peace in the Far East? And clearly, they are going to do something along these lines. So I think it's, it's clear that after June 1940, you have real problems. First of all, you've got the Vichy Front, the French, which are now taking over the situation in the, the Far East. Now, what on earth does that mean? Will the Japanese be able to force the, the Vichy French to agree to let them come into southern Indochina and so forth? What is going to happen there? And if they do, Will they be content with what we would now know as Vietnam? Or will they go elsewhere? I mean, Vietnam doesn't pose what the, and, and doesn't provide what the Japanese want. So it's a stepping stone, but you've got bases, you've got means from there to attack other places. So then the question is, will they invade Thailand? Thailand, of course, independent. But are they going to worry too much about Thailand? Because clearly, they're looking towards the Dutch East Indies, because that's where Sumatra, of course, very, very much so, Borneo, the island of Borneo, these are where big stores of oil are. Now, in order to get there, they're going to have to do something about Malaya. Have you heard? History is going to Antarctica, and we're taking you with us. I'm Dan Snow, and I'm be part of an incredible expedition to try and locate the missing endurance shipwreck. Ernest Shackleton's vessel that was crushed by the ice and sent to the depths during his 1914 attempt to cross the vast continent from side to side. Whether you're a Shackleton expert or this story is completely new to you, we've got something special for you. It starts on the 7th of February, when we'll be dropping a captivating mini-series that tells the tale of just how Shackleton and his crew managed to survive months stranded in the coldest place on Earth with no shelter, no ship, and no contact with the outside world. How they made an escape that defies the very limits of human endurance, through the planet's roughest oceans in a wooden rowing boat, walking across mountains and glaciers, all with not enough food or water. So, make sure you subscribe to Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you listen to your podcast to get the full story. Endurance 22, coming February 7th. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And of course, as the Japanese look to take all of these resources, it means that the British also lose all of these resources in terms of the Second World War. So take us through that attack itself. When does the attack on Singapore begin? The the situation is that very few people would have thought that the Japanese would do something like attack Pearl Harbor. I mean, to take on the world's leading economic power, the industrial power, a power that could be the leading military power with vast potential. I mean, are you crazy? What on earth are you doing? How on earth can you beat them over a long period? And the Japanese military, who really were astute, not all of them were, those who saw this said, we have a year, we have a year. Now let's make as much havoc as possible in that year. So Yamamoto, who was the architect of the attack on Pearl Harbor, knew he couldn't win a long war with the United States. But at the same time, they wanted to use the dislocation that would come from their attack on the US Pacific fleet, eliminating them from the scene, as they hoped for a year, so that they could make hay down in Southeast Asia. I suppose, wishfully thinking that maybe the Americans might then say, well, look, okay, you, you, you keep this part if you, if you strike at the Americans, expect to be struck back. And, and the Americans have now declared war. This looks like uh, a zero-sum game. I mean, I do not see how the Japanese can win this. Do you, do you think the Japanese were hoping for a road to negotiations? Was Pearl Harbor a, a kind of a pawn in a broader chess game? Was this leverage? Is, is that what we think here? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that... Maybe they might have hoped that somehow, by some means or another, the Japanese might be able to pay off some massive ransom or, or some such thing. 
But when you kill Americans, I think politically this is not a, a likely possibility going forward. So the point was, let's use the opportunity and attack Malaya and Singapore. Now, the idea that in Yamashita's mind was that he had 100 days to do this. Now, fascinatingly, you know, this is no longer really too much of a naval question. We'll come on to what happens to the flying squadron in a little while. But essentially, it's going to be now an army game. And I think there are a number of things that are staggering about this Malayan campaign. But maybe I'll come back to that, if I may, in a few moments. Let's deal with the naval side, get that out of the way first, and then I'll come back to, to the Malayan campaign itself. Not yes. that I, I wish us to get bogged down in any of these major battles, but there are a number of points I think we can make. You're not the first naval historian to keep us on track with naval history, Malcolm, so don't you worry about it. Take us, take us back to the Navy. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Well, I think the, the question was for Churchill. Look, we can't expect the Americans to come in and help us unless we show we're prepared to help ourselves. And therefore, this was of course before Pearl Harbor, right? so therefore he begins to revive an old idea that had been put forward by the Chief of Naval Staff some years ago in 1937, when Backhouse had come forward with an eye of a flying squadron, where you would have say, a couple of capital ships, fast capital ships, modern, and a carrier to go down to Singapore. Now, on this occasion, the British decided that they would send a modern battleship, the Prince of Wales. They would allow it to join up with an older uh, ship, the, the Pulse. And also, they would have this, this new or modernized carrier. Unfortunately, the carrier ran aground in. Uh, on a coral reef just outside of Jamaica, uh, or in Jamaican waters. And while it didn't sink, it delayed its progress to the east. It never reached the Far East when it was needed. It came in as part of the Eastern Fleet later, but it wasn't there. So we have the Prince of Wales, we have the Repulse, and we have few destroyers going to the Far East. Now, the problem is, James, as you can imagine, we're talking two ships now. Under normal strategic terms, if you play away from home, you know, like a football game, if you're playing away from home, you're expected to have more ships available to you than just a minimum. If you go and play against maybe four or five capital ships from the Japanese, how on earth are two going to stand up to, to this kind of thing? So there was already a question about the sending of these ships. Now, of course, when they get to Singapore, they get to Singapore before the attack on Pearl Harbor and before the first bombs fall on Singapore. But the, there were all kinds of issues. The commander of this fleet had been basically a desk-bound admiral for years. He hadn't had operational experience. He was a friend of Churchill's. Titch Phillips was a, a good director of plans. A world of difference to being an operational commander in a wartime situation. And I'm afraid Phillips didn't cover himself in glory when he uh, came back from Manila, he'd flown there to, to discuss the ongoing situation with an American uh, naval commander. And he flew back to uh, Singapore and decided, you know, once the balloon went up and Pearl Harbor, uh, the attack was there and bombs began to, to fall on Singapore, that clearly the ships must go to the, the sound of the guns. He could have gone south into the uh, Dutch East Indies and saved himself, but he felt that this was not how it should be done. And so he steamed north in an attempt 
to sink the transport ships, the troop ships that were disgorging Japanese soldiers uh, on the beaches of uh, northeastern Malaya. Unfortunately, his force was discovered, A, by a Japanese submarine, and then by uh, aircraft, reconnaissance aircraft. And so he knew within hours that the game was up, that he'd been seen, he'd been spotted, and sure as anything, there was going to be some retribution to this. So he turns under cover of darkness and steams back towards Singapore and then gets a notice that, that there was something, that some sight, that some, some belief that the Japanese may have landed on the eastern coast of Malaya. He goes to check this out without using any kind of communication. He stays there for many minutes. I mean, I've seen it talked about as being two hours, may not have been quite two hours, but it was a long time, far too long. It was clearly there was nothing going on. There was no attack around Quanta. And so he then steams back towards Singapore, and that's where in the South China Sea they were spotted and sunk by uh, Japanese torpedo balloons on the 10th of December. So this is the first time, of course, that a capital ship, a modern capital ship, has been sunk by aircraft. 800 odd naval personnel die in those two ships, including Phillips himself. So this was, again, another tremendous crashing symbol. So, and obviously, one thought, gracious me, now what? And clearly, the, the now what is what happens on the Malayan campaign, because once the Japanese have reached, got a beachhead, now the question is going to be, well, can they exploit the situation? Or will the markedly superior in terms of numbers of personnel, allied personnel, be able to repel them? And this is a story and a half in and of itself. And I think a number of things come out of this, if I may. One, complacency. There was a kind of, and I have to use this term advisedly, James, and I, and I hate the, the term, but there's a racist superiority that was evident in what was going on. A sense, really, that the Asian foe couldn't possibly be as good as one's own. But equally, I would say that this has repercussions within the Commonwealth Army. Remember, this is an army composed of many Indian troops and Australian troops as well, Australasian troops as well. And yes, British officers and, and so on and so forth. But I want to just say this to you, and, and, and I think it's important. You know, the Brits, because they are the center of the empire, believe so, forced the Indians into war. They sent Indians, soldiers, to Malaya with the clear express purpose of fighting for the empire. And yet there was an imperial color bar that was very evident in Malaya and Singapore. Let me just make a, a, an example here. You are an Indian officer who has been promoted to officer status. You go to Malaya and you're denied access to a swimming pool because you're black. How on earth does that create any kind of harmony? It doesn't. And there was a real sense, I think, that are India seeing this in the same way as the Brits? 
Or does India also want independence as well? I mean, I do think that you know, the assumption is, oh, they're part of us and, and, and they will do as they're told. And I'm not sure that that was as strong an influence as for the Indians, uh, as maybe many imagined that it would be. So there was this sense in which I think the Allies overestimated their own qualities and underestimated the Japanese. I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. The Japanese equipment was better. If you look at the aircraft, they had more. Um, I mean, British intelligence suggested, intelligence in inverted commas, that the Japanese had 300 aircraft. They had actually 600. British intelligence again suggested that they might well strike north rather than south. Well, no, they didn't. So, I mean, this kind of sense that, you know, don't worry, on the night we will be able to do it. We will be able to win against this inferior opposition, regardless of whether they could see at night or whether they couldn't, blah, blah, blah. I think is a real problem that persisted in military circles for too long. I think the underestimation, the, the, the strength, the vitality of the, of the Japanese, I mean, their aircraft were far better than ours in any case. Uh, not only had, did they have doubled them, but we had obsolete aircraft out there as well, and not enough of any good ones to make any real difference. So there was a real sense that, you know, we didn't have this right. Moreover, we didn't imagine that the Japanese would adopt the right kind of tactics, which was up-tempo, charging, constantly giving the Allies no time at all to regroup, to be pushed into headlong retreat. They adapted, the Japanese adapted to the thing. They'd had training. They'd had jungle training. They, they worked out what they were going to do. We didn't do that to the same extent. So there's inadequacy. The strategic doctrine for the Allies was not fit for purpose. It wasn't. It wasn't fit to fight a jungle war in the way that the Japanese fought it. The Japanese were on the front foot, even though they had a much smaller force, and they remained on the front foot. And we were on the back foot. So in a sense, we were outfought and outfoxed by the Japanese. And that, I think, was was remarkable in, in, in so many uh, ways. And, and Malaya is a, is a brutal campaign and the British get a bit of a, a stonking bloody nose in there. To what extent are we able to retreat in any capacity towards Singapore at this point? Are we able to, to reinforce Singapore before the invasion? Or is there, is there very little chance that Singapore is going to hold in, in any capacity? I think that, you know, once you've, you've got a situation where you are in headlong retreat, it's extremely difficult to then re-establish a military redoubt. Now, back in 1935, Major Dobby came out to Malaya and said that in order for protection purposes for the base, there needed to be a 50-kilometer perimeter which would be defended by the Allies so that the Japanese didn't get closer so that they could have used their artillery to pound the new naval base. But that was not done. Those defences were not drawn up. Money was one of the factors. The other factor, of course, is civil unrest. If you show that you are concerned about the potentiality of a force, an enemy force coming, this is going to lead or could lead to very serious and maybe critical unrest. For example, in Singapore and Malaya, they, well, in, uh, in, in both of these places, the idea was you must not show 
that anything is awry. You mustn't do anything with the golf courses. And equally, the rubber trees, no, no, you, you, you don't touch those because that would make it seem as though, I mean, goodness knows what's going to happen, uh, defeat possibly. So you couldn't really adopt a scorched earth policy in this kind of situation either, James. So, I mean, it, I don't think once they had started to lose those major battles at Jitra and Slim River and so forth, I mean, KL, Kuala Lumpur, taken swiftly, and then it's just a question of moving down through Malaya. Now, the Japanese did this wonderfully well, and you have to say that much of what they did was fantastic. There was, of course, elements to their attack which were abominable. Yes, well, here's where, of course, Singapore has, has gone down in, in history as a, a truly infamous day, week, a week of fighting, really, for, for the British. So perhaps take us through that week of fighting. Take us through the, the landing and the, the air operations. How many are we talking here? How many do we manage to muster up? What do we have to defend here? And how many were attacking? Well, I mean, in the end, we had about 100,000 Allied soldiers uh, on Singapore. But, I mean, clearly there was a, a kind of a, like a siege mentality to begin with. And then from the 8th of February, 1942, the first attacks at night and into the mangrove swamps on the north coast of, of Singapore. I've been there, gone through there with my very dear friend who has written about this campaign, Brian Farrell, and it's really remarkable. I mean, you, you really feel a sense, oh, gosh, uh, how is it that this all went down in the way? There were no lights to shine on these people coming in so you could shoot them out of the water. I mean, seriously, there, there were real problems with Allied military leadership, with various leaders not liking and, and being jealous of and, and acrimonious towards others. I mean, it was really a kind of a disaster because once the Japanese had landed, I mean, really, they had everything in their favor because, quite frankly, they could call upon other Japanese reinforcements if, if, if it was necessary. It was then going to be a series of savage battles during through the island, but then it was anyhow the Allies would lose this this particular series of battles, no question at all. And moreover, ultimately, if the water ran out, which it would do within uh, hours or days, uh, then that was, that was it. You mentioned some of the uh, despicable acts during this particular invasion. Are you able to talk to us about the Alexandra Hospital massacre? Yes, this is, of course, an extremely unpleasant aspect of it. But I think the situation, when you are a force that has come under tremendous fire, I guess that it's easy to see how people crack under those kinds of situations. It doesn't, it doesn't condone what was happening. I mean, the bayoneting of people as they lay on operating tables, the, the killing of other people in their hospital beds, the murdering of those that were found sheltering the following day. I mean, you know, absolutely. But I mean, it, it wasn't just confined to the Alexandra Hospital situation, because afterwards, once the capitulation came in, then the Japanese were looking to deal with anybody that they regarded as suspicious and potential enemies, and hence the suction purification exercises that lasted several days, weeded out and killed many many Chinese. The greatest number that is usually estimated is 50,000. It's conceivable that it may have been less, but I mean, even if it's one, it's bad. Uh, but this was horrendous. And 
therein, I think, is this very, very unsavory aspect of war, which comes out in this particular situation. That's a, a really interesting take because, of course, the Alexandra Hospital massacre has, has gone down in, in, in British history as that point where this British military hospital, very clearly marked with its its red cross, is caught between the retreating British and the advancing Japanese and as many as 200 staff and patients are killed. And, of course, perhaps then the best way for us to see this is just merely one of many examples of atrocities that took place into their thousands during this period after the British had surrendered. Now maybe take us through that moment because it's not often that you get Churchill describing a moment as the worst disaster and largest capitulation that quote I started with in British history and a British surrender is not something that is taken lightly. So what is it that causes the British to surrender at that moment? Well, they surrendered because there was no way out. They'd lost. And the question is, had Percival continued uh, the war effort, given what they'd seen at Alexandra and other places, it could have led to mayhem, absolute mayhem. So better to keep the Japanese who were under some kind of control with Yamashita, rather than keep the war going where the spoils of victory could be absolutely horrendous. Just imagine raping and pillaging and murder. As we saw in any case, heads were stuck on poles and, and so forth, and, and many of the delightful scenic bathing spots around Singapore were used for the slaughtering of uh, those at the, uh, who, who succumbed to the Japanese. You know, and I think the real issue for the Churchill that for so long, he and others like him didn't imagine this would happen, that it could happen. And so therefore, it comes as a stark an unremitting sense of, of, of failure, of surprise. Do you think that Churchill felt personally responsible for what had happened there? Like you say, he had been responsible for the cutting of, of, of budgets during his time in, in power and perhaps hadn't sent or couldn't have sent a fleet that was able to defend. Do you think he felt a personal guilt? I, I don't think so, no. I don't mean this in a nasty anti Chilean way at all, but I think he was genuinely surprised at how things had gone. And because I think that there was this feeling that it'll, it'll be all right on the night, we'll somehow muddle through. And he didn't. And the Japanese proved to be a much more resourceful and formidable foe than we had ever imagined. So what was that agreement that was made in terms of the surrender? Did any of the Allied soldiers get to evacuate? Was that one of the terms here? No. It's very clear that the Allied soldiers would be interned. They would become prisoners of war. There would be some civilian internees too, those who were often Eurasian or were uh, British uh, stock or whatever. 55,000 of the Indians were not interned as prisoners of war because Japan had hoped that the, the Indians would rise against the empire as a result of the, of the war and to throw off the yoke of, of British colonial rule. So you've got, you know, suddenly Singapore becomes a huge POW base. And it's notoriously not a great place to be is a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And this is where British soldiers and civilians spend the rest of the war. Well, not necessarily, because many of them would be taken to work on the death railway and up in Thailand. And that was hell on earth. Because, of course, Singapore isn't put back into British hands until September 45, right? Correct. 
it's a it's an incredible amount of time, isn't it? I mean, it's the almost entire expanse of, of the war we're talking about here. But one thing I want to I want to ask you before we draw this to a close is. What was the impact of the fall of Singapore and Malaya on the rest of the war? How did this impact the Allied war effort? I don't think it was something that was going to lead to a major disaster for the British. I mean, the, the war, fortunately for the war, for, for the British, the Americans were in the war. They believed, as Churchill said, after Pearl Harbor, it was the first night he'd slept well for a long time. because. The belief was that in time, we will win, not least because the Germans had taken on the Soviets as a result of Operation Barbarossa in June 1941. So that this most unlikely triumvirate of powers, of the Americans, the Soviet Union, and the British, were all part now of an alliance. And that alliance would ultimately win. I don't think Churchill had any doubts about it. But clearly what he was concerned about was the manner in which Britain lost Singapore, that this was going to have an effect on the Asian civilian population. And Lee Kuan Yew, who became, of course, one of the great elder statesmen of of Asia and of the world, says of the defeat that he was there, he watched the Allied soldiery walking out to Changi to their imprisonment. And he had this sense that the white man had been beaten by the Asians, and that he felt a certain sense of Asiatic pride towards. And he also made this point, and I think this is really significant, and it's the one that, that Churchill would have, would have feared, and that is, if you want to do something for yourself, do it for yourself. Don't rely upon others. They might talk loud, they may talk long, but do they come to your aid when you most need them? So, I mean, I think that that legacy is really quite something that, you know, the, the sense in which the British invincibility shaken to the core and nothing that the British did in recovering Malaya and Singapore against an opposition that didn't fight it in 1945 did anything to change that situation. And so do we think that this sows the seeds for the Malayan emergency that really starts to erupt from 1948 and lasts through to the 60s? Well, the Malayan emergency is another thing altogether and deals, of course, with the whole element of, of communism in Malaya. But that's for another story and another podcast. We will get you back on to talk about the Malayan emergency. It's one that we haven't covered and we definitely need to. Malcolm, thank you so much for your time. Tell us, where can people read more about this? Well, I think that the best book on the Malayan campaign is by my uh, old friend, Brian Fowle. It's called The Defence and Fall of Singapore, 1940-42. to 42. It's an extremely good book, very sensible, not exaggerated, and really says the, the business. And I think in terms of the naval side of things, well, my naval warfare, 1919 to 1945, is out there. I've done tons of other things on the Singapore strategy, which you'll find, if you ever get to it, in the notes and so forth. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a story and a half. Well, we'll pop a link to that in the show notes. And you can go along on Twitter and you can follow Malcolm at ProfMalMurphit1. Just in case you have any worries that there may be a two or a three, he is the number one. Malcolm, thank you so much for your time. Okay, James, thank you very much indeed for asking. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.